Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 200 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Luna 15. In the Soviet Union, the highest-ranking political leadership viewed success in space as an effective factor of ideological influence on its people and the peoples of the Warsaw Pact nations. During the last seven years of his administration, Khrushchev secured indisputable superiority for the Soviet Union in space exploration and, in the process, embarrassed the most powerful nation in the free world. But, after overthrowing Khrushchev, Brezhnev and his cohorts eroded those achievements and, in the most important arena of space, the United States had now surpassed the Soviet Union. Brezhnev could not even invite foreign guests to a lunar launch of Soviet cosmonauts like the Americans could. In April of 1969, another day of Soviet celebration was drawing near. This time, it was the 100th anniversary of the birthday of Lenin. In the Politburo, Afanasyev, Smirnov, and Ustinov would inevitably be asked some embarrassing questions, such as, What's going on with our lunar program? You promised by the 100th anniversary to land a cosmonaut on the moon, who would plant a Soviet flag and place a bust of linen beside it. Then you decided to argue that we don't want to take that risk, and we would first send an automatic spacecraft that would drill and collect lunar soil and deliver at least 100 grams to the Earth. But that's not working out either. In February 1969, the first launch of the Soviet moon rocket, the N-1, exploded. By April, the Soviets still did not have a clear program of subsequent piloted Soyuz flights. In May, the Soviets watched the successful U.S. lunar orbital flight and practice landing of Apollo 10. In June, a lunar sample return mission failed when the Block D stage refused to ignite. On July 3rd, the second N-1 launch failed with a spectacular 
explosion. Despite all of these setbacks and the achievements of the U.S., there was still a glimmer of hope yet. Another Soviet YE-8-5 lunar excavator sample return mission was scheduled to lift off on July 13th. Apollo 11 was scheduled to launch on July 16th. Since the Soviets could not get a man to the moon before the Americans, perhaps Luna 15, the lunar sample return mission, could steal some of the glory from Apollo 11. The hardware that would be employed in the Soviet sample return missions can be traced back to the E-8 program developed by the design bureau known as NPO Lavochkin, run by chief designer Georgi Babakin. NPO Lavochkin was given responsibility for the development and construction of unmanned lunar and planetary spacecraft in April of 1965, so OKB-1 could concentrate its resources on the development of Soyuz spacecraft and the related hardware needed to send cosmonauts to the moon in competition with Apollo. The Design Bureau's first success included Luna 9, which became the first spacecraft to land a working payload on the moon on February 3, 1966, and Luna 10 became the first spacecraft to successfully enter orbit around the moon two months later. The E-8 program initially consisted of two components. The first was the E-8 rover, which would eventually be known as Lunokhod, and the E-8LS orbiter was the second component. Both versions of the EA used a standardized correction and braking module known by the acronym KT. The E8 had a dry mass of about 1,100 kilograms and it would carry 3,500 kilograms of hydrazine and nitric acid propellants internally and in four jettisonable outboard tanks. The KT carried all the consumables for the KT-DU-417 main engine and attitude control thrusters. It also was equipped with an astro-orientation system and other sensors needed to support its payload in space. The rover would be brought to the surface by a version of the KT fitted with landing legs, a pair of ramps, and other equipment required for descent, such as a radar altimeter. Originally, the mission of the rover was to perform an on-site survey of a proposed manned landing area to make sure it was safe. It would also carry a radio beacon to guide the Soviet lunar cabin, also known as the LK, towards a pinpoint landing. Later versions would be used to aid the cosmonauts' exploration of the landing area. The E-8LS orbiter's mission was to perform an orbital survey of the proposed landing sites. Its variant of the KT was loaded with less propellant than the lander version, but it carried more consumables 
such as attitude control needed for its planned year-long mission in lunar orbit. The orbiter's primary payload was a modified E-8 rover instrument compartment, minus its wheels and other drivetrain components, equipped with high-resolution cameras and other instruments to study the lunar surface and the surrounding environment. As 1968 unfolded, it was becoming increasingly apparent to Soviet officials that the Apollo program was going to land a man on the moon long before the Soviet equivalent would be ready to fly. Babakin and his team at NPO Lavochkin had a potential means of at least partially upstaging Apollo, an automated lunar sample return mission. These engineers ultimately arrived at a simple means of doing so using the E-8 hardware currently under development. The standard E-8KT was modified to carry an 800-kilogram payload consisting of a toroidal-shaped instrument compartment used to support surface operations and a simple ascent stage that was to return a small lunar sample secured by a sampling arm and placed inside a spherical 50 centimeter in diameter return capsule with a mass of 35 kilograms. The entire spacecraft was known as the E-8-5. It stood 3.96 meters tall and had a mass of about 5,700 kilograms. The Lunar 15 version of the spacecraft was also capable of studying circumlunar space, the lunar gravitational field, and the chemical composition of lunar rocks and providing lunar surface photography. While in theory the KT could deliver its payload anywhere on the moon's surface from its parking orbit, the E-8-5 designers had to sacrifice some flexibility in order to limit the ascent stage to a mass of 520 kilograms and maintain the tight development schedule. Dmitry Okot-Simsky, a pioneer of space ballistics at the Soviet Institution of Applied Mathematics, had discovered a limited set of trajectories from the lunar surface which allowed a returning spacecraft to follow a simple ballistic path without the need for a mid-course correction, or the mass penalty of a complex guidance system. This simplest of return strategies only required the ascent stage's guidance system to maintain a vertical ascent profile while its KRD-61 engine accelerated the returning spacecraft to a velocity of about 2,700 meters per second. When properly timed, the return capsule would literally fall straight towards the Earth with any initial aiming errors minimized by the focusing effects of the Earth's gravity. Since this approach resulted in a large error ellipse at the Earth, a radio beacon on the ascent stage as well as optical tracking during the final approach would allow the landing site to be determined precisely enough to ensure ground recovery crews could locate the return capsule after landing. 
Such a simple ballistic return from the near side of the moon was only possible for landing sites in a narrow band centered just north of the lunar equator near 56 degrees east longitude in the general area of Mare Crisium and the highlands to the south. The exact location of the 10-kilometer-wide landing zone varied over time depending on the time of year, the moon's position in orbit, the extent of lunar librations, and the general location of the intended recovery site. Fortunately, much of the area of the moon was relatively safe for landing and was scientifically interesting as well. The first two attempts of the lunar sample mission failed. This brings us to Luna 15. Of course, to go to the moon, Luna 15 required a carrier rocket. I want to spend just a little bit of time on it. Luna 15's carrier rocket was a Proton-K, also designated Proton-8K-82K. It was built by Khrunichev and launched from Sites 81 and 200 at the Baikonur Cosmodrome. The maiden flight of the Proton-K was on March 10, 1967. It carried a Soyuz 7K L1 as part of the Zond program. The baseline Proton-K was a three-stage rocket. Thirty were launched in this configuration with payloads including all of the Soviet Union's Salyut space stations and all Mir modules. Like other members of the Universal rocket family, the Proton-K was fueled by unsymmetrical dimethyl hydrazine and nitrogen tetroxide. These were hypergolic fuels which burn on contact, avoiding the need for an ignition system, and they could be stored at ambient temperatures. This avoided the need for low temperature tolerant components and allowed the rocket to sit on the pad fueled for a long period of time. Proton components were built in facilities near Moscow, then transported by rail to the final assembly point near the pad. The first stage of the Proton K consisted of a central oxidizer tank and six outrigger fuel tanks. This separated as one unit from the second stage, which was attached by means of a lattice structure interstage. The second stage ignited prior to first stage separation, and the top of the first stage was insulated to ensure that it retained its structural integrity until separation. The first stage used six RD-253 engines designed by Valentin Glushko. The RD-253 is a single chamber engine and uses a staged combustion cycle. The first stage guidance system was open loop which required significant amounts of propellant to be held in reserve. The third stage was powered by an RD-0210 engine and four veneer nozzles with common systems. The veneer provided steering, eliminating the need for gimbling of the main engine. They also aided stage separation and acted as ullage motors. Ducts built into the structure channeled veneer exhaust before the stage separation. 
The third stage guidance system was also used to control the first and second stages earlier in flight. The Proton-K used for Luna 15 had an upper stage to boost the payload into a higher orbit. In fact, Block D upper stages were used on 40 flights, the majority of which were for the Luna and Zond programs. The Proton-K was retired from service in favor of the modernized Proton-M. The Proton-K had 311 flights, the last occurring in March of 2012. Luna 15 was launched from Baikonur on July 13, 1969 at 0254 Universal Time, about three days before Apollo 11. Luna 15 was placed in an intermediate Earth orbit after launch and was then sent toward the moon. After a mid-course correction the day after launch, Luna 15 entered lunar orbit at 10 o'clock Universal Time on July 17, 1969. The spacecraft remained in lunar orbit for two days while controllers checked all onboard systems and performed two orbital maneuvers. After completing 86 communication sessions and 52 orbits of the moon at various inclinations and altitude, Luna 15 began its descent by firing its main retro rocket engine at 1547 Universal Time on July 21, 1969. By this time, astronauts Armstrong and Aldrin had already set foot on the moon. Transmissions ceased four minutes after deorbit at a calculated altitude of three kilometers. The spacecraft probably crashed into the side of a mountain. Impact coordinates were 17 degrees north latitude and 60 degrees east latitude in Mare Crisium. In July of 2009, an audio recording of the minutes in which British astronomers from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics observed Luna 15's descent. Thanks to the discovery of previously unheard recordings from 1969, we can now listen to the unfolding drama. The recordings come from the control room of the Jodrell Bank Observatory, where astronomer Sir Bernard Lovell and colleagues were listening to transmission from the moon on the Lovell radio telescope. The recordings chronicle events from July 19th through July 21st, 1969, with Bernard Lovell narrating as events unfold. The first two minutes of the recording reveal that the Luna 15 had dramatically changed its orbit. Um, this is uh, Sunday, July the 20th. Uh, the sounds we can hear in the background are the commands from Luna 15 entering on its uh, 29th orbit and also the voices from the Apollo 11 spacecraft now in orbit around the moon about uh, two hours before the separation of the uh, lunar module from the mother craft before the landing. This is uh, Sunday, the 20th of July, 1969. The time is uh, UT 1653, 17 seconds. 
In the background, we can hear the voices of the Apollo astronauts on the orbit in which they serve to reparate Columbia from Eagle. And we can also hear the signals from Luna 15 as it emerges from behind the moon on its 40th orbit. In the previous orbit, there was a dramatic development, its orbit being changed from 2 hours 03 minutes to 1 hour 53 minutes, uh, thus bringing it closer to the lunar surface. And according to J.G. Davis's calculation, the uh, inclination of the orbit has been changed to bring it closer to the landing site of the Apollo spacecraft. Now, the real excitement begins on July 21st, when Bernard Lovell reports on a rumor from a well-informed source in Moscow that Luna 15 is going to land this evening and return to the Soviet Union with lunar rock samples. Uh, this is uh, Monday, July the 21st, and the time is 15.40.32 seconds, British summer time. The American astronauts are in the spacecraft after a walk on the moon and are due to lift off from the lunar surface in a, just under two in, in about just over two hours time. Meanwhile, the noise we hear is from the Lunic 15, which is now beginning its 52nd orbit. The um, period was still further reduced an hour ago, so it is now orbiting in one hour 53 minutes and there has just been a, well a rumor from a well-informed source in Moscow that uh, this lunar is going to land this evening and return samples of lunar rock to the Soviet Union. At 15.50 hours on July 21st, the astronomers listened as the Luna 15 crashed into the moon's surface. In the final moments before the spacecraft hits the moon, voices from the control room say, it's landing, and it's going down too fast. I said, it's landing. Time is fifteen fifty twenty seconds. Well, that we believe to have been the landing of Luna 15, and here in the background, you'll hear the voices of the Apollo astronauts on the moon. Uh, we think that the landing has taken place in the Sea of Fertility, uh, that is close to Sea of Tranquility. The time now is 1556, 1557, 01 seconds. I say this is really drama, the highest order. 
As the recording ends, one observer sums it up as, quote, I say, this has really been drama of the highest order, end quote. In a race to reach the moon and return to Earth, the parallel missions of Luna 15 and Apollo 11 represented in many ways the culmination of the space race between the space programs of both the United States and the Soviet Union in the 1960s. In addition, the simultaneous missions became one of the first instances of Soviet-American space cooperation. The Soviets released Luna 15's flight plan to ensure it would not collide with Apollo 11, but they did not disclose the mission of Luna 15. Salutations from the Sunshine State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 200 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Luna 15. First of all, sincere apologies for mispronunciation on the Russian names, and I'm also sorry about that clip not being very clear. That was uh, the, best I, the best clip I could get, I know it's a little bit hard to hear. I want to give a big shout-out. To all my long-time listeners, thanks for staying subscribed, and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that and more on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the Soyuz-level donors. There are 12 so far this year. Soyuz donors give $30 or more during the calendar year. Thanks for your continued support. Soyuz donors. Had a few afterthoughts about this week's episode. First, I want to say that this was one of those episodes that you really need to see the pictures that I post to understand what I'm talking about. There's just no way I can describe Luna 15 with just words. So, check the pictures out on the website or follow me on Twitter and Facebook or email list to see the photos. Can you believe that that Proton version K was used so long, beginning in March of 67 and ending in March of 2012? That's 45 years out of that carrier rocket. Pretty impressive. Wasn't it nice that the Soviets let us know their flight plan for Luna 15? (laughs) So Apollo 11 wouldn't have anything colliding with it? I thought that was pretty nice. (laughs) Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage, spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check it out. I was pleased to receive seven donations to support the podcast over the past week. Take V from Netherlands donated well above the Orion level and earned his rocket emoji. Thank you so much, Take, for that generous donation. Joseph S. donated at the Vostok level. Marcus S. from Cologne, Germany donated at the Mercury level. Lynn C. from Ireland donated at the Apollo level. Matt T. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Andrew F. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. 
David V. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned his rocket emoji. Thanks so much, donors, this week. That brings us to 99 on Patreon. We lost one donor and we gained three donors. We came as close as you can to reaching 100 Patreons before the 200th episode. Maybe next week we'll reach uh, 100 Patreons. Our overall number of donors this year so far is at 129, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Please keep in mind the Space Rocket History Podcast is entirely listener-supported. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you are enjoying this content and can afford to help, please consider donating to support the podcast. Keep in mind, you don't have to donate a lot. You can make a one-time donation of $10 at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a dollar donation per month. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Do you think Space Rocket History is worth a dollar a month? Hmm. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. Well, I am delighted to report the podcast has passed four years in service and reached 200 episodes. That is a hectic pace. Producing about one episode per week for four years is very demanding. The podcast has been heard in 184 countries. About 50% of the listeners are from the U.S. and 50% international. Over the past four years... The top countries for podcast downloads are number one, U.S., number two, U.K., followed very closely by Germany, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Japan, France, Austria, and New Zealand make up the top ten. It still amazes me that the native language for five of those countries is not English. I really admire you listeners for being able to understand an American speaking English with a southern accent. It's amazing you can understand me. Okay, that's enough for the statistics. When I began this podcast, I had the idea of taking about 20 episodes to reach Apollo and completing the podcast in maybe two or three years. Well, as you know, it's taken four years and we are just now about to start Apollo 11. I guess I could have done it much faster, but I would have had to leave out a lot of the details and not even cover some milestones. So I decided to do as thorough a job as possible, yet try to keep things moving on. It is a delicate balance. Last year, I believed that we would reach Apollo 11 before the podcast made it to its fourth year. I was just a little bit slower than anticipated, because we will start Apollo 11 next week. During this year, we surpassed 1 million downloads in January. Now we are very close to 1.1 million downloads. Meanwhile, it has been a wonderful experience, and I have met a lot of nice people all over the world. I received tons of email saying really nice stuff about me. And I want to say thank you very much for that. I sincerely appreciate it. I know some of you have been with me since the podcast began in 2013. I want to thank you for coming along on this journey with me. 
I want to thank all my listeners, especially the donors who have given to support the podcast. I'll tell you the truth. The podcast would not have made it this far without the donor support. And I also want to thank those who have shared the podcast and those who took the time to give the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you. I appreciate it sincerely. And of course, I don't want to forget Dave down at Aussie HQ for his continuous efforts to bring some humor into the podcast. Many of you have asked about the future of space rocket history. Well, I try not to look too far in the future because plans can change suddenly. But my immediate goal is to complete Apollo 11. Once that goal is accomplished, my next goal will be to complete Apollo 13. And if that is accomplished and funding is still available, then I will take a goal of completing Apollo 17. After that, I'm not sure. So, how long will it take to reach Apollo 17? I don't have a clue. I hesitate to guess, considering I usually find more interesting things to report once I begin the research on the topic. So, your guess is about as good as mine as to when we'll reach Apollo 17. (laughs) And now, as is custom, the moment we have all been waiting for our annual Tang Ceremony, and this year we will have a special guest. Mrs. Space Rocket History is here to partake in the ceremony. If you will be joining me, pause the podcast and go get your Tang or other orange-colored beverage. We will wait. Okay, if everyone is here, let's go. Mrs. Space Rocket History has arrived with two very special cups, and we will now pour water in the cups. And here's my cup. All right. Now, to that water, we will add some time. Say hi, Mrs. Space Rocket History. Hello, everyone. Okay, I'm going to open the tang jar. Now, each of us has a spoon, and we're going to dip in, oh, I don't know, two or three of these heaping spoonfuls of tang. There's one for me, one for Mrs. Space Rocket History, Caroline. There's another for me, another for her. I'm going to do one more. You want another one? Okay, now, is everyone ready to mix the tang? I'm putting the cap back on the bottle. All right, here we go. Let's mix up our tang. Okay, that looks good. Now, let's have a drink of the tang together. Refreshing. (laughs) Okay, that was the Tang Ceremony for the 200th episode. Thank you for participating. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so, like my retweeters. 
Okay, that's going to wrap up 200 episodes. We will begin Apollo 11 next week. So long for now.